What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Shin to Chin MMA. Super pumped about the podcast we got coming up here. Uh, amazing guests. But before we dive in, got to give a massive shout out to one of our main sponsors, uh, MilitaryMuscleInc.com, or just Military Muscle for short. These guys are doing incredible things. They're veteran-owned and operated. They do some amazing work for our deployed guys. They've got the red, remember everybody deployed, remember everyone deployed thing going on. Uh, they're also partnering uh, with packages from home at the moment, which is basically, a, in a nutshell, every time someone goes on to militarymuscleinc.com and buys a shirt or buys a tee, they're donating a, to a deployed troop. They're also uh, donating another shirt to a homeless veteran. These guys are really doing some amazing things. They're partnering with Operation Hope, helping out the homeless veteran population. Seriously, guys, go support them. Use promo code SHIN2CHIN, all caps. Get on there. See what they're doing. Hear their story. You're not going to be disappointed. They're some of my favorite people in the world. And please, get out there. And if nothing else, support your troops. All right, the next shout-out i got to give is actually to Lyft. Um just doing awesome things out there with Lyft. They're actually catching up to Uber, whether people believe that or not, I don't really care. Look, we get on here, we drink, we cut up. We have a good time just like everybody else does. I know everybody's out going out to the bars right now. I know that Memphis and May is kicking off. We got Music Fest coming up. Seriously, people, do not drink and drive. Use promo code S2C, as in Shin2Chin, for a discount on your first thing, and hey, shit, if you guys want to go and start driving and making money and helping people get home safely, use the same promo code. It'll help you guys out. You get, I think, $50 right off the bat. After you get a few rides in, you earn some extra money. Guys, get out there. Use Lyft. Use our promo code S2C as in Shin to Chin. And please, please be safe. I don't give a shit who you are or anything. The last thing I want is to hear about anybody getting hurt, injured, or killed. So let's get out there, let's be safe, let's make good choices. Last sponsor we gotta give a shout out to, very important one to me in my life. Um, basically in life, there's a lot to be thankful for and, and just as much to be protecting. The things that matter most to you are worth keeping safe. Mass Mutual is a long running history of financial strength and stability and does business with long-term interest of their customers in mind. Here in Memphis, we have Capital Financial Group, which is a subsidiary of Mass Mutual. They help, you prepare, they help you prepare for what's ahead and to feel confident in your family's financial future and your own. They understand who's counting on you. So to learn more, call 901-361-1715 or 805-445-4488 or just visit capitalfinancialgroupcfg.com. All right, with all that being said, let's get started. What's going on, everybody? Gotten uh, pretty excited about today's podcast. Sitting here with a good friend of mine, the deputy state Mississippi State Athletic Commissioner. Deputy Commissioner, yep. De- De- okay, Deputy Commissioner Michael Kane. How's it going, man? Good, man. Glad we could finally get it together. You know, I know we've been trying to do this for a minute. So. Yeah. Uh, Apologies, I got I was ankle deep in shit literally last <laughs> week, and I don't even know if I realized that I'd missed our appointment until after it was. Over, but glad we got together, man. No, you, I know what it's like to be busy, man. Trust me. Um, well, yeah, so I obviously know who you are. I know a lot of like the upper echelon people as far as fighters, promoters, coaches all know who you are. But for anybody who doesn't, like, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, man, no special story. Um, 
I, I got involved, got interested in, in uh, MMA, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA in 95. I was totally the not fighter type guy, you know, really. I, and, and never was really interested in martial arts. But I think like a lot of people at, at that time, uh, a couple of the early UFCs got me interested. I was, uh, I'd just gotten married and a buddy of mine, my best friend got married like a month after I did. And our, our wives both were either going to school or working night shifts. So we had lots of nights. <laughs> oh, we lived in the same apartments. So we had lots of nights where we just hung out. Well, he comes by the apartment one night. He's like, has a VHS tape from uh, from Blockbuster. He said, man, you've got to watch this. I said, what is it? He said, it's like a street fight, but in a cage. And it's just two <laughs> people at a time and there are no rules. And I'm like, why in the hell would I want to watch that? I, you know, I wasn't even really a big boxing fan. I mean, I could appreciate it. But he said, no, you've got to see it because there's this skinny guy who just wrecks everyone else and it looks effortless. You just got to see it. And, you know, he's talking about Hoist Gracie. And, uh, you know, I was pretty hooked on it. I, I, you know, I have to admit this was back when there, the only rules were no biting, no eye gouging. Yeah. So, it, you know, there's a lot of shock value and, you know, involved, but, uh, but I could appreciate the art, especially, you know, somebody, a skinny guy who could make some order out of the chaos and handle these bigger guys. And I said, you know, man, I've never trained any martial arts. I didn't hope I never get in a fight the rest of my life, but I want to learn that, you know, I want to learn that. So, this was 95, 96, so we scour Memphis. No one's teaching anything like that. We um, look, find in the back of a Black Belt magazine a little ad where you could order the Gracie Basic tapes. <laughs> so for like 199 bucks, we ordered these tapes. And uh, between the time that uh, I got hooked and we got the tapes, uh, we bought our first house, which had a little loft over the, uh, over the living room. So my buddy and I drug some mats not mats some cushions off futons up there <laughs> and those were our mats and we trained for a few months with each other you know and learned the basics and then he calls when he's like man i found a place that teaches jiu-jitsu i said great where's it it's right around the corner from us uh jeff mullins mid-south karate they teach uh jiu-jitsu and shoot fight i'm like hell yeah so we uh we went there and had our first class with uh jonathan border uh big dude named chris condo who fought in the ufc uh Quentin uh, Jackson came on you know, a couple of years later. Uh, you know, he was still in high school at the time, I think. But, um, man, it just started like that and uh, just really met a great group of guys and girls uh, through the sport and uh, and just got hooked. And, you know, if you had asked me when I first got interested, you know, would you ever do something like that? I can remember watching the first few UFCs through my fingers like, holy shit, man. <laughs> the guy's headbutting him and he's not even really, you know, the guy's just kind of not even really reacting. It's like it's no big deal, you know. Those are the things about MMA and, you know, that that set it apart. You know, you got your tough guy at the bar who might be rough and rowdy, but, you know, do you know those little things to hurt people quickly, stomping in step, <laughs> you know, Snapping their nose like that, not, not drawing back, headbutts, knees and elbows in close. People, you know, they, they catch a few of those in a street fight, and then that's when it's like, well, wait a minute. Shut down. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was just intrigued, man. And like I said, that was so unlike me. Um, I was I was an athlete. I loved uh, sports. And, uh, you know, I guess as far as taking care of myself, I, I, I probably could defend myself, but it just wasn't a fighter. I would climb the, you know, light pole out there just to get out of a fight. It just wasn't my <laughs> thing, you know. But then after training for about a year, um, we're training one Saturday, and, and Jeff, Jeff Mullen, he's got the phone. He's like, hey, uh, Danny Dring is putting on a shoot fighting event in uh, Lula, Mississippi at the casino next month. Who wants to do it? Mike, you want to do it? And I was like, 
Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, and I don't know why I said that, but you know, as you know, it's the natural progression. I think I think most people probably get into it with you know no ambition on competing, but you know, in, in that raw style of combat, the natural progression in question is, would it work? You know, yeah. I mean, would would it work? How effective is it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I said, I'll try it. You know, I'll try it one time, and you know, I wind up having like trying it one time 11 times you know but um you know but but before I fought I've been training for about six months and uh, I used to play rugby in in college at University of Memphis and uh I went back for an alumni game or as an alumni tournament actually it was in Syracuse New York and uh long story short this guy hit this guy a little too hard on the field and he was this short so he looked like Emmett Smith yeah 5'10 like 240 man you know Legs like tree trunks, you know, and I fought at 170, walked around at 180. So, you know, he was just, anyway, he came after me, they split it up. So we're having a, we were, had the, the host team always throws a party, you know, and they had it at a bar that night. So this guy gets drunk and he's walking around the bar talking. And every time he gets, comes past me, he's a little drunker and a little more belligerent. And I'm like, I tell my friends, I'm like, dude, let's go back to the hotel because this guy's fixing to, you know, I'm, I'm, he's not going to let it ride. So they're all right. So, we walk out and walk out onto the street there in Syracuse, out on the sidewalk, and who's waiting on me but this huge dude. And he's drunk and pissed off because I hit him in front of his family, you know, knocked him out of bounds from his family. Anyway, um, and he's just not going to let it ride. So I remember thinking, all right, well, you know, well, let's get it over with out here in the open. I don't want this fucker to get me in a alley, you know, yeah. <laughs> where, you know, I can't, you know, can't, nobody can help me. So uh, he comes at me with this huge haymaker. And I remember it was like slow motion, you know, it was like textbook jujitsu. Duck under. And I reach in and I reach and I grab for the double and I grab the back of his thighs. And I remember thinking, holy fuck, I, I hope this stuff really works. I really <laughs> hope this I remember thinking that clearly. I hope this really works. I know it works in class, but this dude's huge, you know. But that was my first experience. You know, I wound up wasting the guy. You know, he, it was just trained to get sun trained. Yeah. Know, just a clear cut case of training versus sun trained. Uh, he wound up coming to the hotel uh, the next morning. Next morning, about 8 a.m., I look out the hole, and I'm like, holy fuck, this, this guy, he's out here. He's just not going to leave me alone. And he was all, he's like, man, sorry, I was drunk, you know, let my ego get involved, you know. But that was my first fight post-training, you know, uh, that unfortunately didn't happen in the, the cage or the ring. But but uh, at that point, I was like, okay, yeah, it, it does work, you know. And, 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 you know, I always, that's how I sell jiu-jitsu to people, you know, it's, I think it's the only, I'm not saying it's the best martial art, but if you had to pick one martial art that can teach the proverbial 90 pound weakling to defend himself, I think that's it. You know, your, your Muay Thai is outstanding, but I think you have to have some physical attributes to go with that. You have to be able to kick a little ass to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you got to have the height, the reach, the, I mean, the. Muay Thai is just a whole different beast. Right. Right. It's beautiful. I love it. Poetry in motion. Absolutely. I love it. But that's, uh, you know, and, and from there, like I said, I had a few more fights. And then, you know, a couple of us, we were talking about Chad earlier, you know, Chad, Jeff Mullen, Dave Ferguson, myself, uh, you know, we were, didn't realize it at the time, but we were, you know, in that grassroots stage. It was a great time to be involved in the sport, you know. I mean, it was new. And matter of fact, it was so new that it, it's kind of how I wound up in the position I'm in now. I'm not. I'm, not any more qualified than anyone else. I've just kind of been around longest, you know, by default. I'm the, I'm the de facto, you know, guy that may know the answer. But, um, you know, also I think a few of us uh, took such a love for the sport that we, uh, we, we kind of 
saw ourselves as, as stewards, you know, until someone else came along to take care of it, you know, and it's grown, it's really grown that fast. Um, but it's still kind of in that middle stage where, you know, quite frankly, you see a lot of guys fighting as professionals that probably shouldn't be fighting as professionals, but oh, yeah. there's such a need and a, and a void there that, and there's not a lot of, you know, resistance in that path. So it, it's new, it's still growing. Um, I love it. I think it's kind of plateaued off a little bit. I think Dana White, I can't stand him personally, but I really love what he's done for the sport. The, you know, the sport wouldn't be what it is. It wouldn't be at all probably if it weren't for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and it is really interesting you bring that up too because I feel like a lot of people feel that way. Like we all appreciate him, but we're kind of tired of him. He's, yeah, he, he just does it personal, personality-wise, I should say, like not really the greatest. It, but. It's not. And I think he – he revels in that. I think he, you know, I think he accentuates it, you know, with the F this, F that, do you want to be an F and fighter and all that, you know, but I don't think anyone can question what he's done for the sport. If no. you had told me when I started that, you know, dude, I was a junk, you know, there were two or three pay-per-views on a year and oh, you had to get on these underground sites to find out when they were going to be. And you usually couldn't get them because they were on prime star. Everyone's like, you could catch it, but there'd be no sound, but you know, we'd be there glued to the, to the TV trying to watch it. And, uh, but if you had told me then, that man, there's going to come a day, you know, in the not too distant future where every night you can catch some type of MMA on free TV. I would have been like, yeah, bullshit. This shit's yeah. going to be outlawed in, you know, a few years, you know. Oh, yeah. and, and that's one of the things that I, that I credit Dana White and Zufa with is that they tailored it and they did it slowly because, you know, you had your hardcore guys like us, you know, I'm Valley Tudo style. You know, my first fight, I mean, it was Max Bishop put on the show over in, uh, oh, wow. in, in Paragold, and, and basically he would let the two opponents decide which type, which rules you wanted. You know, do you want to wear gloves? Do you not? You know, they weren't mandatory. You want headbutts? Not, you know, whatever you want to do. So, uh, you know, that's the, the school that I come from. So, But even then I knew that mainstream society was never going to accept it as a mainstream sport when you could, you know, sit on top of a guy and headbutt him. And, and yeah. it shouldn't be that way. Well, yeah, that's a very. I mean, people think that headbutts are a tool. It's really for the movies. Like you, you do a lot of damage to yourself as yep. well. <laughs> yeah, it's a coin flip. It's yeah. a coin flip. Yeah. Well, that, that's. I mean, that's insane, and that's exactly why I wanted you on um, because I knew that you were kind of one of the OGs of the MMA world out here. Um, yeah, that's a euphemism for old guy, and it's cool. I, uh, yeah, I dig it. Original man. gangster, old guy, <laughs> right, you know, right? Whichever one. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I knew that uh, I wanted you on here because you've seen how everything goes. I, you know, I told you earlier, I, I kind of came on the scene originally starting jiu-jitsu with Chad Chilcutt. He was a purple belt, which blows my mind now, um, in 2004. And there's a huge gap from then until, I mean, it was quite literally 10 years before I actually re-entered the kind of Mid-South MMA scene. Um, and it had gone from, I, I mean, like everybody knew what the UFC was. But, like, no one really did it. No one really watched it. No one had any idea what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, anything right. like that. You know, people are like, oh, that's the what my wife gets done. She gets the Brazilian. I'm like, nope, nope, that's not what <laughs> nope. that is. Um, but, yeah, and now it's like I came back in 2014, and it's exploded. Um, and I knew that you'd be a really good job, guy to really fill in the gaps here, man. But Yeah, and, and there there are a lot of gaps. You know, it um, like it first came out, it was uh, – you know, they refer to it as human cockfighting. And, and, you know, really it wasn't much more than that. You know, us hardcore guys could appreciate the, uh, you know, the art. And like I said, just being able to make some order out of the chaos is what really impressed me about it. And uh, so, you know, there there was that. 
But for the most part, you know, I, I remember my first few fights, people at work would be, oh, I hear you have a fight coming up. Yeah. What is it? Boxing? No, it's not it's different. Oh, kickboxing. Or, or, you know, or somebody be like, oh, no, he does the real stuff. Oh, kickboxing, huh? <laughs> well, it, there's that too, but no, it's... It's kind of like, then I'd have to go through the whole spell. Well, have you ever seen the Ultimate Fighting Championship? You know, oh, is that where they get in the cage and kill each other? No, it looks like it. They simulate that, but they're not really killing each other. And I was almost almost ashamed to you know let people know yeah. about it because there was a barbaric uh, stigma attached to it. And and you know, you can attest that your, your high-level guys, your, your skilled guys are anything but. They're actually usually, you know, intelligent, Absolutely. dedicated guys, you know, your knuckleheads just don't, they don't make it. They don't wash out, especially if they start coming up through the jiu-jitsu lineage. You know, Joe Rogan has the best quote about jiu-jitsu is the ultimate douchebag filter because you can't come in without knowledge and not be humble and get good at it. It's just not going to happen. Oh, absolutely. You, you, you need to check your ego at the door. And a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people, their careers and games suffer because they were just too competitive and, you know, couldn't, couldn't see training as training and not competition, you know. Yeah, it's a really weird thing um, just watching that happen. Having taught just a little bit, you see the douchebags come in, and then you see them leave and never come back. Yeah. Um, well, you know, when I first started teaching, um, Jonathan Border and I actually, Jonathan Jonathan Border and Jeff Mullen were my first coaches. Uh, and I love those guys, man. They're like family, solid dudes. Uh, you know, and Jeff Mullen is now the, the MF that can't be fired out in, in Vegas, yeah. out in Nevada, you know, which kind of speaks volumes for, you know, how much integrity he has within the sport worldwide, you know. But um, you know, I, I came I came in uh, under those guys, and uh, you know, back then there wasn't six or seven different places in town to train. You know, it was basically two, one and a half, or two. You know, so good thing about it was, you know, most of the guys trained together locally, and uh, you know, of course, the bad thing about it was there just weren't that many. You know, people are getting blue belts legitimately in six months now. Six months of hard training under a black belt, you can get a blue belt. Man, I trained for over two years before I got a blue belt. And and that's how it was because we didn't have – we had each other in tapes to train with, basically. Yeah. You know, when, you know, we'd hear about a black belt who's, uh, you know, giving a seminar in Dallas. You know, we'd get in the car and drive a day's drive, you know, because it was – I think at the time, actually, there were seven, maybe ten – black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the United States at the time. So, you know, getting the chance to train uh, with one of them was just, you know, unbelievable. you just didn't pass it up. So, but, you know, now people have, uh, there's just, there are a lot more people to train with, uh, more training partners. And, you know, that's mat time and different training partners are what make you better, you know. Yeah. Iron iron. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more of that now. And people are just getting better more quickly now, you know. I, yeah, it's kind of wild. Um, I met Sean Applegate last year, um, sat down, talked to him, had him on the podcast, did an awesome one. And uh, I'd asked him at one point, like, you know, when did you start? And he had started like five years before we had that. And I just sat there and stared and I was like, dude, I've been doing this forever. And I'm not on your level. What the hell are you doing? Like, Yeah, well, he, he's probably had five years of experience. You probably had something more like one year of experience five times. Not yeah. a knock on you. It's just, no, no, it's just like I said, it's, it's the exposure you have to it. You know? Absolutely. That's the best way I think I've heard that is yeah. <laughs> explained. That's incredible. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, just from that, um, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu obviously has exploded. Um, I, I feel like now you can throw a rock and you'll hit a BJJ black belt. Um, right. And it's not discrediting any of them. There are some, you know, hanky ones, but... 
for the most part, uh, yeah, I'd say probably 95% of the people are legit and they're, no, yeah. they're badasses. Um, hey, and let me throw this out here. As far as I'm concerned, you don't have to compete as a black belt to be a legit black belt instructor. Oh, no. I, I mean, I, I think some of, you know, I think guys, it's kind of like uh, why Michael Jordan wasn't a great or Magic Johnson wasn't a great NBA coach. It's because he had the talent and he didn't understand, you know, it was hard for him to understand why people couldn't just do it, you know. So I think I think someone with maybe less physical ability, that's what I've always liked learning from the smaller guys. Because, you know, you're a buck 40, you know, you have to use technique. Oh, yeah. You know, you have to use technique, so your technique has to be solid. And I'm not saying the bigger guys don't have it, but, you know, all things being equal, technique's going to win out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and if you have technique and strength, that's, oh, that's even better. better. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think the best uh, example of this is, you know, we call black belts professor. I see the black belts now, um, whether they compete or not, like as like a, a doctor, a PhD level. They got uh, a lot of hours in on that, man. Absolutely. I mean, and you're not, I you know, I say a legit black belt. When I when I say that, I mean like you've mastered techniques and you're capable of teaching them. That's a yep. black belt. Absolutely. Me. And uh, there, are, I mean, here in Memphis, I can't even count how many we've got. We've got a lot. Yeah, there are a lot of them. The, you know, there. I think they uh, last fall they promoted like seven over at Memphis. Um, oh, yeah. I rolled with most of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, killers, man. Yeah. Killers. Yeah, there are a lot of everywhere. You know, Jonathan Border, man. He's a guy that's put a lot of time into it, man. Uh, you know, you got Chad. Chad's a black belt. I mean, these guys have been around. You know, I got my purple belt in 2002 on the same day <laughs> as Rolly Delgado got his. Holy shit. Yeah, I took like five years off of training, you know, doing other stuff. And then even since I've come back, it's been sporadic and mostly teaching, you know, less – less experienced people. So I haven't grown my, furthered my rank and I'm not gonna say I don't care to, because it's not a good example for me not to try to advance my rank, but that takes a lot of time. It's kind of like golf. Yeah. I'm going to be in it or I'm going to be out of it because it's frustrating to do it a little bit and not be where you want to be, you know? Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it's a great example. I mean, everybody wants a black belt. I mean, you know, no one walks in being like, no, I don't want that. That's dumb. Like right. we all want it, but it's like, realistically like do i feel like i deserve a black belt based off of how much i train you right know? and I, I think that's a pretty realistic outlook on that um but you know jujitsu aside like you've also been able to watch the mma world explode around here i mean used to it was just in las vegas i mean obviously right. the first one's in denver i think but um it wasn't legal for a very long time right uh, in most states but the first one i I'm trying to think what the first fights out here was that the one in uh, in Arkansas or is that in? Well, there, um, you know, actually Jeff Mullen started uh, the first version of of MMA shoot fighting, and it was his event was called Kick Shoot. He had down at the Bill Street, uh, down at the uh, the Daisy on Bill Street, and that's where I probably ref my first couple hundred fights and had a few fights there too. Um, he, you know, for obvious reasons, he he. Um, he made it where there was only a limited amount of time on the ground and no punching to the head on the ground. It was more like rings, you know, from okay. Japan. It, it, um, but it was, but it was a good mirror image of MMA, and a lot of people cut their chops there. I mean, I saw Mike Powell and, and Rampage Jackson fight on that show. Man, awesome fight. Uh, I've seen a lot of good guys come through there, and uh, yeah, Memphis has you know it's kind of like basketball. Memphis has its own flavor. It's uh, it's a hotbed, somewhat. 
as far as per capita goes, I think a lot of people, you know, out in California probably look down their noses at us and, you know, maybe they should, I don't know, but, but there's been some pretty quality guys come out of the, out of the area. Yeah. And, and it's been, it's been really neat seeing guys, you know, you see, you got your guys who, you know, are going to be good, you know, your, your phenoms. And then you got your guys who are like, wow, where'd he come from? Yep. He's really worked hard. He sucked last time I saw him and now he's, you know, nobody can beat him. And, and I like that, you know, I, I tell you, I always give this example, you know, Ben Parrish to me is a freaking walking billboard for MMA. You know, you look at this guy and you're like, oh, he's fixing to fight Montreal Grant. Okay, well, see you in the emergency room, Ben. And <laughs> the guy hangs in there, man, and he just has more stick to it than anybody I know. And, and uh, you know, technique wins out, man. And like I said, he's a walking billboard. I mean, you know, the, the the sport is so refined now that if you're going to be at a high level as a pro, you need to be in great physical shape. But it, it's it's really good to see. It's just like back with Hoyce, you know, see this little skinny surfer guy, you know, having his way with these big behemoths. You know, it, that that's what intrigued me because, you know, and that's I think that was the the genius that Horion used when he was putting the US the original USC together. You know, originally they wanted Hickson to be the representative, I did, yeah, but Hickson's a Hickson's a beefy guy. He's not huge. He's still is technical, but he, he's not huge. But he's he's a physically strong looking guy, and I don't think it would have had the same effect if he had been the representative. But you see Hoyce, and you know it has to be the art. There are no physical properties that Hoyce had that made him good, other than his you know his will to win. You know, he's one hundred seventy pounds, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, man. And, and it's changed. They, those days obviously would never be again. You know you. Size and strength do matter now, but it's because everybody's learned the skill and the the playing field is leveled. So, you know, when 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 skill levels equal or you know close to being equal, that's when you know physical attributes like size, strength, and athleticism they do come into play. Yeah, yeah definitely. It and it seems like uh, you know we've been kind of talking about how it's it's moved forward and everybody's kind of got that skill now. Uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but I've always seen this, at least since I've been home, as you have, like, the OGs of the sport. You have that, like, second wave, and I can, like, pinpoint people from there. Right. And then you have this new breed of MMA that's that's weird to me. Like, I, I remember when I first started, um, there were certain things that you just did not do, uh, you know, and certain things that, you know, like, for instance, like, you rarely ever spun because spinning was dumb. You exposed your back. Right. Um, you know, you always, no matter what, circled away from the power hand. Right. Uh, you know, controlling outside, all these different crazy techniques. And I, I look at people that I, I kind of consider that second wave of, um, you know, and they're a little bit older now, but they're still badass. Like, uh, Frankie Shookard's one of the guys I think of. You know, he's fought, for, he's got, like, what, 25? He's yeah. Got something insane. Yep. He's, he's a badass. Um I'm trying to think of like some of the other people. Uh, what's that big dude, uh, Brian Brian Gurley? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian Gurley is another one of those guys. Like where you see that, and those are the guys who are going to come in there and they're going to walk forward and rip you to yep. shreds. There's no secret to what they're going to do. You know, yeah. right? you, you have to deal with it. You have to come up with a with a plan B. Absolutely, and, and you can watch Pride. And like I, me and my buddy uh, Jamie had sat down to watch Pride probably about a month ago, and I was like, man, I kind of miss when people fought this way. It was. Vanderly Silva rampage walking forward throwing like. right yeah and, and you've got to deal with it exactly yeah and it's uh you know back and again when I first started it was it was it wasn't called mixed martial arts it, you know they didn't know what to call it. they called it no holds barred for a while and but you know that had kind of a negative connotation and then 
and then it kind of went into a long period where it, it, it almost went extinct, actually. I remember talking to uh, John McCarthy. You know, Jeff Mullen has been judging the UFC since, like, UFC 8. Oh, and uh, I've been to so many, uh, you know, UFCs with him and sat right there with him. And uh, I remember talking to John and Elaine McCarthy in uh, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, UFC 17. It was Randy Couture and Vitor Belfort first fall. <laughs> it was Vitor's first loss. He was, like, 18. Um but I remember after the show, uh, John and Elaine saying, this could be the last one. You know, the, it's not really making a lot of money. They're catching a lot of heat at the time. You know, let me tell you this. Had there been a death in the sport back then, we wouldn't be sitting here talking now. Oh, damn. I think it's established now where, you know, it, it's a legitimate sport. I don't think that would kill it. You know, and obviously, you know, people die from boxing. Every oh. year, so, you know, that you hear about. Muay Thai, people die all the time. Yeah, but it's accepted. You know, boxing's been around forever. It's got a lot of money behind, you know, Budweiser. And, you know, one of the biggest one of the biggest proponents, uh, opponents uh, to MMA in the beginning was um, was uh, John McCain, his wife. I remember that. Yeah, his wife's, <laughs> I think his wife's family is, uh, like, part of the Anheuser-Busch fortune. And and, and the, the deal is, you know, they, uh, they supported boxing, and it was real convenient to say, "Oh, that's human cockfighting. Let's squash that out." It's kind of like you know the biggest, the biggest supporters of anti-marijuana laws are beer companies because they don't want the competition, right? Yep. So it, it was kind of along the same lines. Uh, you know, it, they labeled it human cockfighting, but I think there was such a good grassroots following, and then you know that fringe element that you know, kind of like the car crash that you can't not look at. You know, I think there's just so much interest in it that it somehow survived that lull and then when the uh when the Fertitas bought uh when Zufa bought the USC in 2000 they they had a great vision I mean how how lucky would it be to be Dana White your your millionaire friends who own a couple of casinos buy the USC and say here you go do what you want to with it but he was a good steward he I mean he he took it he did exactly what he needed to do with it I mean he really he's made it mainstream now and you know, I think the, the the trajectory has leveled off a little bit, but uh, it's certainly here to stay. And, uh, you know, and it's still in the state of flux. You know, you're talking yeah. about, you know, when, when you when I started, you were one style or the other. It was, yeah. You were a striker or grappler, basically. I mean, you know, within those two realms, you could be, you know, different. But it was striker versus grappler. And, uh, you know, it wasn't till probably the late 1990s Frank Shamrock is the first guy that comes to mind that was the he was the prototype for the future he was well-rounded he could do it all you know before him if a guy was a striker you snickered you're like what is he a karate guy or a boxer you just come out and, you know we're going to duck under take him down but uh Frank Shamrock was one of the guys and Pat Miletic to a certain extent uh Pat Miletic more played the rules and don't blame him for that but he was more of I think he was a boring fighter he played the rules Frank Shamrock looked to finish any way you know he can, any way he could, and, and wherever he could. And so that really, to me, stands out as a changing of the guard, where it where it became more of a real legitimate sport, and and it was more athletics were more involved. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I was totally going to ask, like, where do you think the sport like kind of had that that hinging point in coming back? But you already answered that with that. that. And I do think you're right that we've kind of plateaued off um, to some extent. I feel, I don't, how do you feel about WME before I dive on it? And how do I feel about WME? Well, uh, women's MMA? No, uh, the uh, WME, the um, the owner of... Uh, oh, oh the, the new one, yeah. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about them. Uh, 
I think that there's going to be a few more growing pains because, like I said, it's still in flux. The, the sport's still growing. But now it's being, instead of Dana, who was just a fanboy, really, you know, treating it like that, now you've got people running it like a business. You know, the first thing they did was cut a whole lot of jobs when they came in. And, but that's what businesses do, you know, because yeah. a, a business that doesn't make money is not a business. It's an expensive hobby, basically. Yeah. So they came in, they trimmed the fat. Um, I think that ruffled some feathers. And, you know, and then you had some guys like uh, Chuck Liddell and got Matt, uh, Matt Hughes that had some cushy jobs that Dana gave them, which, hey, man, you know, they, they paid their dues. These guys aren't going to have uh, IRAs to support them. So hats off to Dana for doing that. But they came in there like, uh-uh, you know, that's fat, you know, and, and they really serve no real purpose. Um, so I, I, I think they're running it like a business. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody really knows how long or if there's a definite period of time that Dana has agreed to stay or they've agreed to keep Dana on. I think when whenever that point comes, when he leaves or whatever, I think that's going to be the telltale sign of, of where it goes. Like I, said, I think it's, the sport is too established and too popular now for it to fail. But where it goes, um, I think we may see a little more parity. Like I thought we were going to see when uh, – when Viacom brought on uh, Scott Coker with Bellator, I, you know, because Scott Coker knows MMA. He knows oh, yeah. MMA front and back, especially the Asian market. And I thought, you know what? It, and that was right about the time that uh, USC shoved that Reebok deal down everybody's oh, throat. And people were pissed. And I said, you know what? Scott Coker's smart enough. He's going to come in, and he's going to use that to, to maybe get a few of the top-level fighters to come over from the UFC. Hey, look, we're not going to make you wear this bullshit Reebok stuff. You can have whatever sponsors you want within reason as long as we, yeah, uh, as long as we approve them. And you know that's a lot of money because you know you, a lot of trainers you know lost a lot of money when they did that Reebok deal because you couldn't wear any. You had to wear their shit. You couldn't wear anything else. So you know guys would uh, just out of the you know just for support reasons, local businesses would pay fighter A, you know five ten thousand bucks to wear the you know mom and pops hardware shirt or whatever on yeah. TV. It didn't help them, but they they were trying to help out and. Uh, all of a sudden, they lost that those ancillary streams of income, and oh yeah, Reebok can give you a thousand dollars and some T-shirts, you know. So I really thought that that Bellator would leverage that more and and say, hey, come over here, you can make all the, uh, the sponsorship dollars you want, and they didn't. And and overall, I've been pretty disappointed. You know, I think they've they've relied a little too much on circus fights, you know. Yeah. And, and I don't have any problem with Kimbo fighting Ken Shamrock or whatever, but when that's your main event. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's kind of gone in the wrong direction. And I know Scott has bosses with at Viacom, so he he doesn't completely run the show. Uh, it's not like he's got buddies that own it like like Dana White did. But but I, I'm pretty disappointed that uh, he hasn't made more of a run and, and maybe level. If anything, I think the UFC has pulled even farther ahead. Uh, you know, and as long as you have that monopoly, uh, if you're going to have a monopoly, I think Dana White's a good one to manage it. But eventually, it's going to be the good old boys club. You know. Yeah, it's I. Yeah, I'd, I'd have the same complaints about Reebok. I'm I'm not a big Reebok fan when it comes to all the crap that they've done with that. It's um, I know it's coming up next year. Right. Um, I'm kind of hoping they don't renew it, but right. I feel like they're probably just going to. Well, it's uh, a cash grab for the the company. So I mean, it, from a business standpoint, I guess it makes sense. And you know, if you're a fighter, yeah, we need a fighters union. That's I guess it, that may be oh, another topic for another show. But but I, and I'm not a big fan of unions really at all because I think <laughs> in general I think they they interfere with. Uh, with the the way businesses operate, but if there's ever a group of workers that need a union, it's fighters because they you know you fight for the UFC. It's the only game in town. What are you going to do? What are you going to you going to quit? You going to go fight for Bellator? If 
fine, go, you know. Yeah. And it's just like Bellator used to be kind of a, you know, a place where, hey, you can, you know, it's a, it's a stepping stone. But, you know, Dana White has drawn that line in the sand. He hates Bellator. And so basically Bellator is where fighters' careers go to die. If you go there early on, you're probably never going to be in the USC. I mean, look at Ben Askren. Oh, Ben's yeah. not a ticket seller, but he's a dominant athlete, and he would walk through half of the welterweights in the UFC. And Dana knows that, but he's not going to give him a chance. You know, somebody coming from this lesser organization to come lay on his fighter. So Ben Askren, won't, he'll never sniff the USC. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, it, it sucks because I mean, he. I think back in the day, him and GSP would probably have been the, the ultimate match to oh, make, yeah. and then it just never, it never happened. And yeah. That sucks. Hey, look, you know, reality's not. You know, that's what people like about. MMA is it's reality you know it's reality it's the closest thing you're going to see to a real street fight but reality is not always pretty you know and you know I can watch two dogs fight for two hours you know I mean I'm just I'm that much of a fan but your average fan does not want to see a whole lot of wrestling and I get it yeah I mean you gotta be in the sport to to enjoy that right so so Dana's got a little extra support and you know not bringing on asking because he wouldn't sell tickets but he but he would uh he would beat most of the welterweights in the USC I think yeah, and and so another thing that I, I kind of run into whenever I start this conversation with people, um, you know, about WME and how big the sport is, people are like, man, the sport's catching up to other sports. Um, and I, I genuinely thought that except until I think one day I was sitting down with Nick Harmeyer. Uh, I feel like I, I hope I'm saying his name right. I always butcher it. Harmeyer. Harmeyer, okay, yeah. awesome. Uh, Nick, my bad, man. Um, but <laughs> was sitting down, and I, and I kind of said that to him. I made that argument, and he was like, do you realize that the UFC just got bought for like $4.2 billion? That's in one NBA team. Right, right. I was like, damn, man, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, relative to where it started, it's great, you know. And, and gosh, I think they bought, I think they bought the USC, I think, for $2 million. <clears throat> I, I think that's what's the, And I may correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they bought it for $2 million and and sold it for that much. And that's, they sold it for that much, and that's after pulling a whole lot of cash out of it, you know. Joe Silva, not a lot of people know that Joe Silva got almost the same package that Dana White. You know, Joe Silva got almost $10 bucks because he's been there from day one, you know, the matchmaker. Yeah. And, and uh, he was like, they offered him, you know, a chance to stay around. He said, I'm out. He said, my daughter's about to start college. <laughs> I've got this huge stack of money. I'm just going to sit around and hang out with the fam, you know, and they're not blaming. But, yeah, it, it, you know, so relative to where it started, that's great. But but compared to other sports, it, it, yeah, it's, it's literally a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's and and that's crazy to think. Um, just from you know watching it as long as I have, I can't even imagine. Well, I guess you've seen the growth. So, to me, it's it's a weird kind of like nearsighted perspective of um, being like, man, we're really getting somewhere. And then you hear that, and you're like, damn. Yeah, and <laughs> but, then there's all kind of little detours. Like I don't know if you remember in the early 2000s, the uh, IFL International Fight League. Vaguely, they yeah. came out. It was like a team MMA thing, not all at once, you know. But yeah. you, you were a part of a team, and you know, you'd have your team would have three fights in one night. Well, the the part about that that intrigued everyone is they were really they're running like a business, and they offered all their fighters health insurance, you know, which is great. That's only come around in the UFC in the past like eight years, right? And that, I don't even think that's available to everyone. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's optional, but I mean, you know, you're. I don't think John Jones pays for his health insurance. Yeah, you know, fair, what I mean? fair but um, but it just never worked out as far as IFL goes because MMA is not a team sport, and and you know, so basically you have three fights one night. Well, if if your first two guys lost, you're coming out to fight your fight, knowing that your team's going to lose, even if you win your fight. So it was just a real odd thing, and it never worked out. So there were a lot of little, 
experiments like that that, that kind of set it back some. Um, but overall, I mean, I'll tell you this. Um, 2004, there was a uh, Bleed XC at the, uh, at the South Haven Convention Center. Uh, Henzo Gracie fought Frank Shamrock. Oh, wow. Actually, on the main event, and uh, I was backstage. And I was talking to Randy Couture and uh, and Forrest Griffin, and and you know we're talking about the money and how you know it'll never be like boxing. He said no, but it'll be better than it was. You know, Randy Couture fought for the uh, UFC heavyweight, the initial inaugural heavyweight championship in two thousand ninety seven in Japan, and I think he got fought Maury Smith in Japan. I think he got like. 2000 to fight plus another 2000 to win and then had to pay his expenses out of that you know Dude, that's like what people v3 get yeah um, yeah if i, I mean, just misquoted and overhyped you guys my bad jason <laughs> jason please don't be mad at me <laughs> but it's like it's like shut up it's like damn it no, no but yeah. uh yeah i mean that's that's kind of like what um i don't want to say lower level because these guys aren't low level but kind of your middle of the pack yeah i mean uh, you know a, a guy like you know grady hurley's a guy who's like the mayor of tupelo he sells about <laughs> anywhere from 15 to twenty thousand dollars worth of tickets every show so grady makes about eight anywhere from six to twelve thousand dollars after after uh ticket sales purse win bonus and sponsorships he makes about twelve thousand dollars a fight which is good you know fights yeah. a couple good times a year um but that's the exception your your average uh Pro at that level's probably going to make, if he's lucky, he's going to make a thousand to fight and another thousand to win. But you know, I can remember guys fighting for two hundred and you know, and two hundred to win, and then sometimes they get stiffed by the promoter, which I haven't seen a lot of that. You know, that's you know, that's something else too. I'm pretty, um, I have a, a reputation for being this guy that uh, you know has pull strings behind the scenes and you know fixes oh, fights and Riggs all that. Fights, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, anybody that knows me knows it's bullshit. But but I'll tell you something that even surprises me is in the 23 years I've been involved, hundreds of shows I've either, you know, refed, officiated, or, or whatever, and, you know, thousands and thousands of fights. Not only have I not ever done anything below board, what blows me away is I've never even really been asked to. And I would figure that at some point somebody would say, hey, man, you know, take care of, you know, do this. But I've never even been asked to. I'll tell you the most crooked thing I've ever seen. And uh, I won't mention the state. I will say it's the landmass between Louisiana and, and Alabama. But I'm not going to say what the state is. But mm. I was at a, a local show. I believe that's Missouri. So You're right. Yeah. It's Miss something. Yeah. yeah. Michigan. You're right. Uh, I was at this local show. And uh, there were two, uh, two commissioners there. And they were getting all the paperwork together, and one came up to the other and he said, "Hey, man, this kid, I just uh, did his paperwork. He's only 16, you know, because you have to be in Mississippi. You can fight at 17 if your parents sign a, a release. So he's only 16." And the older commissioner goes, "Smudge the ink on the on the paper." <laughs> you know? So I mean, that's really that. I mean, and now I'm, I've heard of and know of things more corrupt going on in bigger organizations, but but as far as anything I've seen, I mean, that's about it. And to be honest with you, that blows me away because I would have figured, you know. Over 5,000 fights, I would have had somebody offer me some money or something, you know, whatever. But, but you know, as, as a ref especially, it'd be pretty hard for a ref to, to change the no, outcome of a fight. I mean, it, yeah. it's going to be obvious, you know. I've, um, I've had people ask stuff like that or, like, do you play favorites? Because, you know, I've, I'm a new, newish judge, about right. a year and a half, a year, year and a half now. And, um, you know, I've had people like say stuff like, how do you feel? And what they don't realize is if I know somebody personally and they're fighting, if I don't take myself out of the equation, which I, I mean, we did that on the last SFC. I, right. I didn't even ref at all because uh, right. I had one guy fighting. Right. Um, 
But if, if I'm not doing that, then I'm probably harder on my guys. Me too. Me too, man. I, the same. And I was talking, actually, I was talking to Leader Fine today. We were talking about judging and perception. And, you know, judging is so all over the place, man. I mean, and, and I don't mean just on local shows. I mean, up to how many times you watch a USC fight and it goes to decision and it's like 30 27, two, two judges score 30 27 for this guy, and the third judge scores at 30 27 for the other guy. And it's like, fuck were you guys watching the same fight but it it's perception and i think that the it's it's not corruption it's incompetence or for lack of a better word i don't think there's a clear definition of the criteria you know yeah effective striking and grappling well a lot of people think if you get a takedown that's effective. you've won well if the guy pops back up yes you should be given consideration in that but if but if you're not doing anything with it it's it's not as it's not as effective or you might win the striking category you come out and crack the guy and knock him down in the first 30 seconds but he wrestle fucks you for the rest of the round yeah you have to use a, a sliding scale and most of that fight was spent on the mat and the guy that won that that category is probably going to be given the round so you know, it's it, it's. I don't think there's a, cr- a clear definition of the of the criteria. I don't think people understand it uh, equally. And and bottom line is with judging, it's subjective. You know, it judging it's going to come down to opinion at some point. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Jimbo Surratt, I love that dude, man. Oh, He's yeah. one of the best. One of my favorite people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. I love having him and you you guys on to judge because uh, he's consistent. When there's when there's a split decision, I'm almost always on the opposite side of him, but he's consistent. And the way I look at it, man, when there's a split decision, you hear somebody go, oh, he was robbed. You, yeah. I've never seen anything that I consider to be a robbery in an amateur MMA fight, never. And I've seen thousands. And I, I've never seen anything I would consider to be a robbery. I've seen some people and I've been like, fuck was he thinking, you know? And But there's so many things that go into it, you know? Something that I am even guilty of to this day you see two guys come out to the cage. This one guy is in great shape. You know he's a fantastic striker. You know, Muay Thai guy's technique is just precision. And then in walks a Bubba-looking guy that looks like a bar fighter. Looks like he should be in a tough man contest. Well, he proceeds to get the better of this guy, but he looks sloppy. And I found myself in the round thinking, guys, technique looked like shit, man. Wait, that doesn't matter. He, he still got the better of the guy according yeah. to the criteria. But I'm still, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this guy's technique was better. It doesn't matter, you know? Well, and, and there's so many other variables that, um, you know, are arguable. Like, it, a lot of things aren't arguable. Like, if you get a takedown, not arguable. That was a takedown, right. you know? Unless, if you pop back up, you're like, well, he still got it. You know, whatever. But, like, slips versus, you know, knockdowns. Um, right. I, me and Jason Lederfein have had this conversation uh, most recently, and I was in the wrong on it. And I'll, I'll straight up say, I thought a slip was... Or excuse me, I thought a knockdown was a slip, and I was on the wrong end of it, and uh, it caused my one score in one round to lean awkwardly. Right. And the right person won, no doubt. Right. Um, but it it put me in a weird position. I was like, man, I kind of feel bad about that. But the thing is, if you're fighting and you're one, don't leave it to the judges. Absolutely, two, easier said than done. But well, yeah. I believe I, I, I subscribe to that and, mentality. And two, if uh, if you're fighting and you get to a split decision, like to me. You, you took you took your your vote out of it. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> if it comes down to a split decision, like eh. yeah, I mean, two people, two of the three judges said this guy won. I mean, whether you agree or not, you're not getting robbed. And, and you know, man, people put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into preparing for this fight and to have it be close and maybe you think you won. You know, it, it's hard. But but like you said, 
do everything you can not to leave it in the, in the hands yeah. of the judges. Now, I, I do. I'm concerned about some of the talk that I've heard about. You know, them adding the half point. Jesus Christ, you're just asking no. for more draws when well, you do that. Absolutely. And God, please don't do that. We have 10 points, and realistically, we use two of them. Yeah. We use 10, 9, maybe. I don't know if I've ever scored an eight round. Um, I know I've seen some that I was like, ooh, that was close. Like, Yeah. Because like in boxing, it, 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 it's a hard, fast rule. You get knocked down, it's a 10 8 round. Yeah. But, you know, we have to use, you know, our, well, was it a 10-8 round? He dominated him, but, he, you know, did he almost finish him? But, you know, now they're with unified rules and scoring, they're saying they want to see more 10-8 rounds. And I can't believe that they're saying that because it's like, all right, we're all over the place to begin with. Now you're saying, hey, just at your own discretion, make it a 10-8 round, you know, a 10-7 round. In my opinion, unless there's a point deduction, you shouldn't see a 10-7 yeah. round. If it's that bad, it probably should have been stopped. You I, know? I mean, like the... I was actually talking to my buddy um, who does the recaps with me on here the other day, and he was like, man, have you ever seen a 10-7 round? And I think the only time I've seen it in the UFC was Frank Yeager, Gray Maynard, the first time they fought for the belt. That right. first round, I think. We almost, yeah. Yeah, knocked, he was about to die. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was about to be the first murder we saw. And, yeah, yeah, that, that could be a case. You know, there are a few cases, but other than that, if there hasn't been a point deduction, I just think 10-7 is crazy. I, I, think, I don't think there's anything wrong with the system. I think it's the interpretation and it's the training. You know, yeah. And I'll say Mississippi is guilty as anyone. You know, and I've, I've tried to get together a standardized, uh, you know, I've told John, uh, man, look, if you'll just uh, pay my expenses, we'll, I'll go to Jackson and however long it takes. Anybody that wants to apply for a judge's license needs to come to this seminar. And you know what? We'll, we'll spend a day going over judging criteria and defining it. And we'll watch some film, and we'll say who won this round. Why do you think that? Well, I think that we should have got this guy because, it, and at least whether you agree or not, or whether it's the perfect system or not, everyone's on the same page. But the crazy thing now is that nobody's really on the same page, man. And it, it, and it's kind of weird because we are mixed martial arts. Um, honestly, none of the young people who have come up in that you know that kind of third generation where everybody has some background in everything. Right. Um, not a lot of pe- those people are judging. So. Like for me, I, I was a wrestler and, you know, I, I did jiu-jitsu, I've done jiu-jitsu forever. Not a lot of boxing. Right. Um, you know, same thing, not that, and as I say this, uh, not saying anything negative about him. Anthony Manis is a kickboxer. Um, no idea if he's ever trained jiu-jitsu. That, right. that being said, I've never had any problem with the scoring. Right. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, who are you, where's your expertise really? And I've always wondered, like, is the UFC or Bellator or even, you know, like attitude, right? Like, are they just picking people who boxed or are they p- picking people who've never done this? Right. Um, and, and, well, that's the thing, you know, like I was talking about earlier, the, the sport is still in such a growth stage, even though it's slowed down some that, you know, it, it's easy to get into these positions and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not, you know, like I, there was a show in uh, Jackson, Tennessee one time and uh, I had, they would call me to, to uh, come and ref. And the, uh, the promoter said before the one show, he said, Hey, one of my uh, sponsors, he's at Helms, a construction company. Um, he wants to be a judge. Are you okay with that? And I said, no, you know, I was in Tennessee. I'm just a, I'm just a, you know, a peasant in Tennessee. You know, I'm a hired gun. I, I don't have any, uh, you know, I'm not on the, uh, the, the, uh, commission. I said, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. He said, well, will you double check and make sure he understands the ten point my system? You know, before we do that, I said, yeah. So I went by and I said, hey, um, uh, here are your scorecards. That, you know how the ten point uh, my system works, right? And he said, yeah. So after the first round, I go to pick up the scorecards. He's scoring it like uh, like Olympic 
ice skating. Oh, like giving up seven two, and you know this guy got oh. an eight, and this guy got a four. You know, and I'm like, holy shit, man. Oh, I, I guess ultimately he was right about who won, but you know, but it, it's just it's getting everyone on the same page. And it, like I said, even if for better or for worse, I think I would rather be consistently wrong than right sometime and then way wrong and then all over yeah. the map it's like it's like that's why people suspect collusion so much or corruption because it's like how in the hell could you have seen that well they were looking for you know one thing you know for years i had the problem of with a close round i'd get to the end of the round and be like holy shit man and i, I I'll, I'll stay right here in front of god and everybody a couple times i've looked across the cage and be like because <laughs> it was so close and, you know the guy's like but but Kevin McDonald, who's a USC ref, uh, gave a clinic uh, the when Bellator was here, uh, when they had their uh, pay-per-view here a few years ago. And uh, he taught us some great techniques, and he said, man, you got to keep a running tally of who's ahead. If you try to look back, you know, five minutes, you know, a lot can happen. You, you may make a mistake, but if you keep that pendulum thing going where always keep up with who's ahead now, even if it's just a little bit, you're going to make a lot better decision at the end of the round. It still can be hard, but keep a running tally, you know, instead of trying to look back. And, you know, I remember in Pride, Pride would have 10-minute rounds. Yeah. You know, and they would just hold the sign up for the fighter they thought they won. I mean, holy cow, that that was crazy. Yeah, and it, it, I don't know. You talked about collusion. And to me, um, I try and stay in good with everybody. That's, and uh, you know, kind of going back to, you know, how much people get paid and stuff around here. Like right. the re I get people asking me to sponsor them all the time. Like, Nope, I'm just going to say this right now. I yeah. will not sponsor anybody. I am right. good with everybody. And I do not have any favorites or anything like that. That being said, I'm also very aware of how people are. Right. And there seems to be this like group of people that are typically the, uh, want to be whistleblowers and their collusion theories. Yeah. Um, and I like to think of them as like conspiracy theorists. Um, well, I, I, we, and I know, I know who you're talking about. There, it. There's a big, there's a bigger group than I'm saying, but yeah. Right. <laughs> and and wait, you know, this discussion's come up lots of time with you know me and other friends, and we kind of figure that there's about maybe 15 to 20 percent of these people that have just listened to what this guy says so much that they kind of believe that. But I think the rest of them know it's bullshit. But they, I think they're in the wrong game. There's, you know, like I talked about earlier, the douchebag filter. MMA, the hurt game is not a place to be if you have a fragile ego. So if you're going to lose, you better be able to man up and say, hey, I got beaten instead of, well, uh, you know, Mike was the referee and he was the best man in the wedding of the corner man of this, you know. I mean, oh. dude, I've heard so much shit. And here's the bottom line. And, and I've just started to ignore. I used to try to, and I still, I still want a good appearance, but I used to try to appease a lot of that bitching. But you're never going to please anybody. And here's the deal. When there's a decision, especially a split decision, one, one person or one group of people is going to be pissed off regardless, yeah. you know. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, and so I've just said, you know what? Screw that. I'm not catering to anyone. I'm going to put the best, most qualified officials on the card. Um, you know, if it comes up where this guy has maybe, tra- you know, dude, we've, we've all trained together at some point, oh God, all of yeah. us, you, you're not going to, unless you fly in officials from elsewhere, you're not going to find somebody that doesn't know something about, at least something about most of the competitors, but you have to trust that you got guys that, that have integrity. And, uh, and man, I'm telling you, I, I've never, I think subconsciously, there's probably been a couple of times where people have, uh, you know, I had that guy used to be my buddy. He's trained with him, whatever, and you know it's close. And maybe they gave it to him, not not intentionally, but I think it's just a you know just a subconscious thing. But I've never seen 
certainly nothing planned or agreed upon. And and I don't I don't think I've ever witnessed anybody thinking, yeah, I'm going to give it to this guy. You know, there's a ref down on the coast who will if if one of his former students is fighting and if he's a better stand up fighter, he will stand them up a little more quickly. And you know, but hey, it, it's it's kind of like I always give this this analogy. I remember playing t-ball when I was six years old, and you look over there, and the first base coach or umpire is like the dad of one of the opposing team's players. Well. It's kind of where we are, you know, with amateur MMA. I mean, I don't want to equate it to that. You know, we want to make it as unbiased, but it's it's amateur MMA, and, you know, it's not going to make you or break you. When you go pro, it's like getting baptized. All the no. losses get washed away, and, you know. People are so protective of their amateur record, though. Yeah. Just from doing, like, a, a couple of years of matchmaking, I, I saw that, and I fucking hated Dude, it. Dude, that, <laughs> that's when you should be more – I mean, you should never want to lose. I mean, obviously, be okay with losing, but that's when you should be more accepting. Well, hey, this loss is going to go away. You know, yeah. it's where you're going to gain some experience and learn, you know. Absolutely. There's uh, – you know, I see guys now who um, will focus on their strengths in these amateur fights. And, dude, your first few fights, awesome. Find your game. After that, don't be the guy who's, you know, Ben Askren at 10-0. and 0, like, right. Like, go try something different, man. Try your boxing. Yeah. You got your wrestling to fall back Fucking on. Nick Davis had, like, 30 amateur fights. Oh, he really did. I love Nick. Man, I'm fucking with him. Man, he had, like, 30 amateur fights. But, you know, talking about, the, you know, the, the group of people that like to – that would rather uh, use it as a crutch as opposed to accept it. You know, I've even reached out directly to some of those people and said, well, hey, man, why don't you come judge on this next card? You know, if uh, I figured, you know, they would get a little bit better insight of the inner workings and see that it's not what they think of what they've heard. Plus, you know, if there's some, there's some, uh, some, something amiss. Well, they can be the counterpoint to that, you know, whatever they can, they can, they can make sure that their vote is cast correctly. But, they don't want to touch it, man. They they'd rather sit back and and use it as a crutch, you know. And I say them, they're, uh, you know, some people. I think I've seen everybody complain at least once. I, sure, I, you know, I, sure. And the, and there are some people that are going to complain. And look, the, the, there's a there's a pretty not a fine line, it's a pretty broad line between standing up for your fighter, getting on the working the refs a little bit like a basketball coach will do, and then being a whiny bitch, you know. Oh yeah. And and we you and I've both seen that line crossed and. Uh, it's unfortunate, man. It, it, yeah, I think it, it it takes away from the fight. These guys, you know, they give it their all. They're getting there, and they, and then uh, the decision doesn't go their way, and their coach acts like a you know a, a crime like a little bitch with a skin knee. You know, and that's just come well, on, man. Don't don't you're making it you're making it bad for your fighter. Don't it, do that. And I'll I'll just say this. Um, this is probably not going to be a very popular opinion, but I really don't care. You can say it. Um, yeah, sh- shit. It's my podcast. Fuck it. Like, um, but like. Let's be honest. There's maybe two mm, percent of the actual amateur fighters out here who are training like they need to be training, right. and they're winning. Yeah. If you're not, and you like, if you're in, you know, the rest of that ninety-eight percent, and that's a very, very broad thing because a lot of people put a lot of hard work, you know, as much work as they can into it. Awesome, good for you. But if you're the guy that comes two or three times a week and you step in the cage, don't bitch. If you're the right. guy that can't make weight, Man. don't bitch. Yeah. Like, yeah, uh, there's so many things that you could take care of that would probably, you know, do away with any other questions you have. You just focus on yourself. But you know, I've I've had people, uh, you know, I've had people tell me, "Well, my uh, I'll never let my student fight in your state again." I'm like, "Well, it's unfortunate and it's sad that you're gonna that you're gonna do that to your student. Uh, you know, limit their opportunities because your butt hurt." 
You yeah. Know? I mean, bottom line. And, and you know, you know what? If you think you take a bad decision, you can work that in your favor so much. Show a little class. Go shake the other coach's hand. Shake the fighter's hand. Good job, man. If it was a bad decision or even questionable, you're not the only person that saw it. Show class, and that's going to say a lot about you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Win more fans that way. But you bitch, and you know it's uh, it's just it's unfortunate, man. And there's a lot of people there. There are people that uh, have been around as long as I have that throw fits and and act uh, act ridiculous. And hey, man. When I fought, you know, I'd be getting my medicals done, and the doctor's like, you must do this all the time. You know, my pulse was like 50, blood pressure 110 over, you know, 65. But uh, when my guys are fighting, I'm, I'm super nervous. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, I have, I have a son who's had three fights, and good Lord, you know, you spend 17 and a half years willing to give your life to make sure nobody hurts him, and then you walk into a cage and put him in a cage with another man who's going to try to do just that. That puts you in a weird place, but <laughs> but I, you know I, I'm always more nervous and more emotionally connected when my students fight. So I get it, I do, I get, it. and I always allow a little latitude for that. But you know, enough is enough, and you know, it, at some point, it's about you and how you're going to conduct yourself. Absolutely, I mean, show class. It doesn't matter when. Right. Um, you know, I, I've seen people. There was an uh, example at one of the most recent shows where like one of the fighters as he's getting announced about to fight somebody is getting involved with another fighter that's in the crowd and i'm just like both of you shut up yeah like neither one of you need to be doing this exactly and uh and you know i like both of them i don't care both of them need to shut up um but stuff like that you just like emotions are really high and i get it you know well that's what takes you from good to great and that's what separates the hobby fighters from people who you know, can make a go at it and then, you know, possible contenders, you know, it's how, it's how you handle yourself and it, it's how you prepare yourself. And it's, um, you know, like you said, it, you're showing up training every once in a while and then, you know, you, you get waxed. Don't turn around and look for somebody else to blame. What can you do? You know, what can you do to, to take care of that first? And then if there's still some shortcomings, then, you know, look at that. Well, you know, going along with that, kind of piggybacking off of that, what do you think, because, you know, there is that new wave of people, um, you know, I, I see, like, Darius Foster, I see, like, actually a shit ton of guys down at Grady Hurley's gym, um, uh, I'm trying to think of more people, Lorenzo Nathan, um, all these different guys, uh, man, there's an endless list between mm-hmm. SFC, V3, and Attitude, um, that are really separating themselves from the pack, um, I think Jordan Fowler's another one of those, but... Yeah. What do you think it is that's actually causing that separation? Because most of these guys, yeah, it's are... a good question. It's it's different with each fighter. Uh, you look at Jordan Fowler; he's got a gaudy record, but he's come on strong, and he's 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 like Harry Johnson. Harry Johnson fought way too often, way too early. He didn't mm-hmm. prepare, but he's always been dangerous. And then he was just hitting his stride when he, you know, when he uh, when he retired. I mean, he, that's when he was the most dangerous and. I would have given anything if if, if uh, he would have started a, a year or two later or just fought less. I mean, he had an unlimited potential. He could have written his own ticket. So it's different with every uh, every fighter. You talk about Lorenzo Nathan, man. He's so talented. He's got the jo- John Jones factor. You can't teach that reach. You know? yeah. John Jones is so effective, and everybody thinks of John Jones as being this dominating, this dominant athlete. You know, John Jones is six four and a half and cannot even dunk a basketball. He's not an athlete at all. <laughs> he cannot dunk a basketball. Seriously, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, but he, he has such a high fight IQ and he uses that reach. You know, and how many times do you see John Jones just switch somebody off with one punch? You don't, but he, he frustrates people. He keeps that reach, and he's he's not athletic at all. But he's 
he's he's got good conditioning and he uses his reach just perfectly. So I, I think I think Lorenzo Nathan has that. You can't you know like they say about centers in basketball. You know you can't coach seven feet. Yeah, you know, seven footer you can't coach him. You got they got to be born that way. And I think uh, I think uh, in, in the case of Lorenzo Nathan, I think he's a um, I think he's a guy that's got a great build, a good fight IQ. I think Brian Hall does a good job with them. He's a seasoned yeah. guy, and I think he's another one of those kind of like the second wave of legends that's yeah, been out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and like I said, a guy like Jordan Fowler, I think he's just fucking hard work. He's like a Larry Bird. You know, yeah. Larry Bird couldn't jump over the Collierville phone book, but he was, you know, he he was a, a dominant player because he he honed everything else. You know, he he worked hard on defense, rebounding. You know, he had had such a high you know basketball IQ. So I, I think it's different with with everybody. But I think if you had to pick one thing overall, it's like we were talking about earlier. It's uh, the popularity of the sport. There's more support for the sport. I mean, dude, when I, you know, my in '96, my first fight. My opponent probably got switched ten times. That still happens today. But you know, guy like footage. You want video footage of your opponent? You know, man, I, you, you didn't know who you're going to fight sometimes till you got there. And then you know, it rumored it was this guy and this guy. You know, now one thing about it back then, it was so new that we had a good group of guys here. So my training partners and training was that was the hard work. You know, usually getting in the cage was a, kind of a step down and. If anybody was really capable of beating me or anybody else, you would have heard of, you would have heard of them. So yeah. if I'm fighting this guy, I've never heard of him back then. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have the advantage. Still didn't want to overlook anyone, but but that was the mentality. Now today, you can have never heard of this guy, and he'll come in and wax you and everybody in your gym. I mean, the sport's just that big, you know. Yeah. And, and you've got guys. Cody Floyd is a guy, man, that fruit dying on the vine. That guy had such, uh, and still has such a. Uh, unlimited potential and uh for several reasons he just he just quit competing but uh wasted talent man not wasted uh, you know he, he's doing the right thing but you know that's one of those guys it would be like if bryce mitchell suddenly quit fighting it's like no bryce you're special you know you've got that you got the it factor you know and yeah. bryce has it bryce not bryce isn't an, an athletic phenom uh he's he's i mean he's athletic but it, that's not what makes him good he, he just has He's special. He just has the it factor. You know, Jordan, Michael Jordan had the it factor. He was a winner. He wanted to win, and he made everyone around him better. And I think a lot of fighters separate themselves with that. Um, Now, the sport is growing so fast that if you don't continue to hone that, the sport will catch up with you. Like, for instance, talking about Cody Floyd. I mean, Cody was so head and shoulders above everybody he competed against, and he hasn't fought in seven years. He could come back today and be effective, but he wouldn't have that head start. Yeah, everybody would be close to him, you know. So it, the, the the sport is improving and changing so fast that, and that's what happens. You know, age never really catches up with fighters. In a few cases, they might fight too long, but what happens is guys staying. They stay in. They fight so much that they stay in fight training mode where they're not in training. You know, there's a world of difference between training for a fight and training to learn and get better. Yeah. So they're so they're just in fight camp all the time. The game passes them by. They don't improve and everybody's getting better and they turn around and they're not they're they're they were a big fish in a little pond and now everybody's as good as they are. And it's rarely age or, or mileage. There are some cases I think that big Noguera, you know, he just he had some highway miles on his yeah. ass, man. I mean, Chuck Liddell, you know. Yeah, uh, just... yeah. But you see, you know, like like Liddell, he was dominant, and then it seemed like he got knocked out, and that's all he could do was get knocked out. You know I mean? Yeah. Guys are that dominant. When they reach that pivot point, it's like 
they're an afterthought. Fedor, you know, did you ever think Fedor would would end like you know he has? And no, man. So what? Why was that? Was was he uh, maybe not fighting the best competition in Japan or? Maybe, but I think it's more that uh, he fought so much and he wasn't improving. And, you know, now he, he's not head and shoulders above everyone that he gets into the cage with. So it's yeah, it's even. I, and that's perfect because you can look at, um, you know, if we think of other sports uh, like the NBA, you had Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in a game. Like, will people ever do that again? No. And don't get me wrong, Will Chamberlain was incredible. Uh, Pretty good with the ladies, too, I hear. Uh, I hear good things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's not that people are worse. I, I think, you know, and I'm not a big LeBron fan, but I think LeBron would probably murder Will, Will Chamberlain on the uh, oh, on the floor of now. Of course, of course. Um, and, it, and you just see that on certain things. Like, you, Fedor had this, like, 30-fight record. Um, you know, Jose Aldo had it. Ander, Anderson Silva, um, whatever that kid's name was, uh, that was Jose Aldo's... Oh, Hennon Burrell. Hennon Burrell. Yeah. Um, yeah, where's he at? But now? once the pendulum swings, it's like they're ordinary or, or less, you know. It, 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 and a lot of it's just people getting figured out, you know, just just getting figured out. And there's so many guys like that, like, and you got certain guys that are that are front runners. I won't mention any names, but pe- there are guys in this area too that are great as long as they're ahead. But do yeah. they hold pressure? You know, perfect example is back in the uh, early '90s. You know, UNLV had all those dominant teams, right? In 1990, they never trailed a game in the second half. They got to like the final four, ran into Duke. Well, Duke jumped on it, jumped on them, and they were down 20 at the half. They fucking fell apart because they had never played from behind. They did not know how to handle pressure, and so you know, being that dominant's good, but the playing field is going to level one day, and you know, you need to be ready. You need to be ready for some. Uh, for some, uh, you know, some tough times. And that, that's what, that's the measure of how good you are and how much yeah. you, you can improve, you and, know. And I think there's the inverse to that, too. I mean, we, we see things, um, you know, as far as just, like, a raw emotion and coming from behind, like people like Tim Bosch, who is notorious for knocking you out when he's behind. Right. Um, and you also have people who, in the middle of their career, became world-renowned. Max Holloway is an incredible example of that. Yeah. I mean, he... I think he went like three and three in his first six. Yeah, I wouldn't say that he came out of nowhere, but suddenly he's dominant and beating these top level guys. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah. that was every unexpected. time he fought in that. And I guess it's eleven or twelve fights now. Every time he's fought, I'm like, he's going to get killed. Yeah. He's going to, and eventually, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> like, what right. did you do with old Max Holloway? Yeah, people people thrive. You know, d- d- different things motivate different athletes and, and get them you know out of their comfort zone. It's uh you know, some people fall apart when, when maybe they're getting exposed and some people are like, hell no, I'm not, you know, I'm going to dig down. And then to me, again, that's what, that's what takes you from good to great. You know, use another basketball analogy. I remember, remember when, uh, LeBron and, and Dwayne, they all had the announcement that they were all going to play for the Miami Heat oh, and everything. Yeah. And, you know, Super team. Yeah, yeah, whatever. That's cool. And, the, and I think they won a championship or two, but you know, they were asking Jordan about it. They said, you know, what do you think about them making such a battle over that? And he said, he said, you know, they got to do what they want to do. He said, but me, I was a competitor. He said, there's no way I would have called Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson. Hey, let's all go play for the same thing. And he said, I want to go get my guys and beat them. You know, yeah. it, was, it was about competition, about being better, you know. But it's different, man. It, it's different. Uh, you know, it's hard to follow a team these days because of free agency. You know, people, the average, you know, length of time spent at a team is, you know, two years when, you know, used to guys would spend most or all their career with one team. So it's, the landscape's changed, and it's 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 the same with MMA, I, I think. And, and you know, it, 
Dave, Dave Ferguson and I, you know, we, we've talked MMA forever and we always thought, I, here's what we thought was going to be the downfall of MMA. We're like, look at these, these, you know, Randy Couture fights for the heavyweight championship for 2000 and 2000, right? All right. So when this starts going mainstream, the salaries are so low, the corruption factor is going to be huge. You can take oh, a, yeah. a relatively small sum of money and, and pay off a couple of fights, you know, and, and, you know, make yourself a lot of money by betting on the underdog, you know. Um, luckily, I think it's been policed fairly well. I don't, you know, I've seen, uh, I've seen a couple of works. I've seen uh, Dan Severn has done a few works. Not, you know, I had, a, I had two fight shows in Carthage, Mississippi back in 2000, 2001, and Dan Severn fought on both of them. Quentin fought on one. Um, and I remember the, the main event for the first one was Bart Vell and Dan Severn, both two older, you know, Bart Vell's like a shoot fighter from back in the day. He fought on those, uh, extreme challenge shows and, and uh, this guy named Eddie Goldman, who was uh, had his NHB radio show back then, had me on the show one day talking about the fight. And he's like, you know what's going to happen. Those two old guys are going to get in. They're going to agree. They're going to do a work. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so, man. I, you know, don't question their integrity like that. I don't, oh, believe me, they're old school. They're going to get in. They're going to make an agreement, and they'll exchange money afterwards. And gonna... Anyway, so I told Dan about it. And Dan, you know, Dan Severn, if you don't know him, is a character, man. Oh, yeah. And he's like, Okay, I'll make sure that everybody knows it wasn't work, man. And he pulverized <laughs> Bart. I mean, pulverized. That guy was a bloody mess afterwards, man. But, oh, God. Yeah. Now, this was uh, before. No, check that. This is after Dave Ferguson fought Dan Sever. You know, that was his first yeah. pro fight set up by me. We were, um, we were like two weeks out from fighting on Max Bishop's show. And then two weeks after that was the show where they needed an opponent for for Dan. So Becky Levi, his trainer and manager called me and I said, yeah, I got a guy, you know, Dave Ferguson, he's, he's really talented, but he's walks around at like 195. He'll be like 185 or lower before, you know, Severn's like 260, you know? Yeah. She's like, well, if he'll do it, you know, I said, okay. So I called Dave. I'm like, Hey man, I got that fight. He's like, really? I said, yeah. I said, but, uh, so I guess we need to call Max and tell him, you know, you, you probably don't need to be fighting two weeks before, you know, fight Dan Severn. He's like, no, man, let, let's just keep it like it is. So he fights this guy, he fights uh, uh, Gerald Mackey in, uh, in Perigold, Arkansas. And let me tell you, man, Max Bishop's guys were some rugged bastards, man. I mean, oh, yeah. seriously, um, they would fight anybody, anytime, anywhere. You know, Max would be like, hey, we're sure to fight. You two guys are fighting. You know, I know your training partners are cousins, but y'all are going to fight each other. Okay, you know. I mean, they would fight anybody, and there were no easy fights against those guys. Even the less skilled, less experienced ones were going to come and give you hell, man. And uh, so, yeah, so Dave fights him, and then I think like 10 days later fights uh, fights Dan Severn, which I probably would have uh, dropped the smaller fight beforehand to focus, <laughs> but he just wanted, you know, he wanted to stay on track. So it was, a, it was a good thing. But a lot of people question about what kind of friend I am making uh, Dan Severn. I think Dave had like two or three. He had one eight-man tournament as amateur, so that's three fights and then like one other single fight. So he had four amateur fights before he turned pro and, uh, and fought Dan Severn. But that's how it was back then. I mean, you, you just didn't turn down an opportunity like that. You know, yeah. there there wasn't going to be another fight show, you know, next week. And that's why back then you always had the issue of some people pulling out the week of the show, but not nearly like it is now because there you don't know when your next chance to be to fight. And you get blackballed. There's only a few organizations. You get blackballed, you just won't fight anymore, you know. So that didn't go on as much of it. Now people can piss off one promoter and the next weekend be fighting, you know, yeah. for someone else. And, and, you know, I'm glad that there's that much, uh, there's that much interest to have that many shows around, but you know, there's just going to be some, some 
negative things are going to come with the growth, you know? Yeah. And, you know, kind of going back, uh, you know, kind of coming full circle, I should say, you know, before we start wrapping things up, but, um, you know, looking at how much we've grown and all the things that have come and the interest that's peaked out of it, what people don't realize is we've got in the 16 people that are on the Ultimate Fighter season right now, we've got two of them from our area. Yep. Uh, both undefeated, both incredible, both, I think, managed by Matt Weibel. Um, yep. I yep. mean, like, uh, I've seen both of them fight on V3. I've seen, I mean, like, I've had both of them on, uh, you know, back when I did the web, the Shindichin website instead yep. of the podcast. I've had... Like these guys are now at the upper echelon uh, of the sport, and so many people. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about like how you know Californians might like pick up their nose. Like, really, send somebody to beat Bryce right, Mitchell, <laughs> right? Well, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Thomas Vasquez. You yeah, know? he. Uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, he fought when he first you know left Memphis and started fighting nationally. He fought on a, a show out in California, and. Uh, it was at an Indian Reservation Casino, but it was they had a, a, a pretty rudimentary internet pay per view. So we're all you know tuning in, pulling for uh, Thomas. But the whole lead up to the fight, all they could talk about was like, I mean, it was so it pissed me off. They were like, "Can a guy from Mississippi really? Does he really have the skill and the the you know the uh, you know the that much?" Uh, that much skill to be able to compete with our champion. You know, he's he's trained out here in California all his life. This guy's from Horn Lake, Mississippi, and uh, you know Thomas goes out and just proceeds to walk his ass through the garden. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, and that's it. That's just I think that's probably in a nutshell is is the the bulk of the appeal about MMA. Anybody can win. Oh, yeah. And at any time, you're never, it's like poker. As long as you got a chip in a chair, you're still in it. It's like, you know, if you're not out, if you haven't quit, you're still in that fight. And how many times have you seen fights turn on a diamond? I think oh. that's the true appeal to it, you know. Oh, I've seen so many fights that, like, I had no idea they were going to end that way. The, oh, when, yeah, one guy's knocked out on his, you know, dead on his feet, and he knocks the other guy out and back oh, and forth. Man. It's awesome. Like you know? uh, Pat Berry versus Chet Congo. Chet Congo. Good Lord. Um, even more recently, uh, Michael Bisping with yeah. Rob Cole. Yeah. Who saw that shit? Dude. Like, yeah. I mean, just incredible stuff. But that's what that's what people, you know, and, and again, that's, that's when the, the, uh, the extraneous, the ancillary qualities take you to the next level. You know, how much grit do you have? You know, because you see it, man, as a as a ref, so many times, I've refed over 4,000 fights, and I've seen, I look at people when they come in the cage, I can immediately tell when someone's scared. You know, there's always the person who has the blank look, and, you know, you can't really get a read on it, but I can almost always tell when someone's scared, when someone's overconfident. I, I, I can just look at them. They have, you know, they have that, that look, and uh, it, it's, um, it, you know, you see it, but you... There's also that look you can see when somebody breaks, you know. Oh, man. Can't always see it in the crowd, but but I, you, you can always see when someone breaks mentally, and their opponent, you know, usually sees it, and they, they turn it on, you know. There's um, there's that book. I can't remember who wrote it, but it, it's called A Fighter's Mind. Um, they talk about, like, grinding somebody until they break, breaking their will. Yeah. And, again, that goes back to that, like, old school kind of mentality. Now everybody just wants to outpoint each other. And right. I respect it. Yeah, it's, it's a new sport, but, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like, there's nobody who breaks their will, you know. I think of Randy Couture when I think of that, you know, who would just all over you nonstop, throwing everything he had at you. Um, you know, old school uh, Vanderlei was like that old school oh, shogun. He, he, yeah, Vanderlei was. 
It's a reason to call him an axe murderer. He actually, <laughs> he actually enjoyed hurting people. You know, I mean, you saw one of his fights against uh, Dan Henderson and Pride. He's mounted on him, and he stands up out of the mount just to stomp him. You know, stomp in the head. He, and but that, you know, that's what made it interesting. Um, but some of the rule changes, although completely necessary, they really changed the landscape of the fighting. Like taking headbutts and uh, out of the equation, which is. Absolutely necessary. There's yeah. no place for that in MMA. Soccer, soccer kicks. Yeah. Fan. Yeah. And I, I'm totally against the new rule about, oh, yeah, you can soccer kick. Just pick their hands up off the mat. I mean, that's even worse. So if, if a guy's out on his, you know, he's like this, just pick his hands up off the mat and frame him in the face. I don't get that. But at any rate, you know, so that changed the landscape. Also, uh, you know, time limits. Hoyce had a great point about time limits. He said, you know, if I take you in a helicopter and fly out the middle of the ocean and I drop you off and I say, I'll be back in an hour to get you, you're not going to like it, but you're going to tread water. You know there's an end in sight. But if I drop you and say, see ya. Yeah. A lot of people are going to panic and drown immediately. And that's how it was with, with time limits. You know, if I'm fighting this guy and I know there's no way I can finish him, but I'm stronger than he is and I can hide a little bit. If I know there's that finite time limit, I can hide, I can lay and pray, and I can I can still have a chance to win. But if it's like... There's no time limits. You have to finish him. That That's why, you know, when they didn't have time limits, all the early UFCs, they were over quickly. Yeah. You know, then they added time limits, and they, they, they would make it like an hour-long fight or two 30-minute rounds. Well, people knew there was an end, and there was a finite end in sight, and people would hide behind the clock a little bit. And that's, that's when there right. was—it got kind of boring. That was also when the influx of, of the American wrestlers came in, so I think it kind of slowed it down a little bit. There wasn't as much brawling, which is what a lot of people tuned in to see. But uh, but th- that's a rule change that I think changed the strategy. And, you know, that's when Hoyce got out and said that's why he got out of it. I mean, I, I think he got out of it because— you know, he had done as much as he could do, you know, and... And you go out on top. I mean, no yeah. one is ever going to question Hoyce's legacy. Dude, I mean, I wouldn't be... Even if MMA had, had grown like it has, I wouldn't, like I told you, if it would have been Hickson or another big, strong guy in there, I wouldn't have been in this... You know, I'd still watch it, but I, I wouldn't have been... I wouldn't want to get involved because, you know, Hoyce, that says, hey, uh, anybody can do that. Anybody can do that if they put their mind to it. Yeah, definitely. Well... Man, one thing I want to ask you, um, just because you know you have kind of the the eagle eye, I should say, of like a lot of things around here. You you see things um, probably more than I do. Um, I have an interesting perspective. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask you before you know I let you go on here is, what are you looking forward to most in this? I mean, we've obviously got a bright future here in the mid south. Um, like, what are things you're looking forward to most coming up? A hundred percent, honestly, man. I'll tell you what. In the 20-plus years I've been involved, every fight show I've been to, I've either been fighting and or cornering, training, judging, commentating, promoting, uh, acting as an official for the, the commission. Of all the fights I've seen, and I've seen thousands, I've been to hundreds of shows, I think on two different occasions, I've been able just to sit and watch fights. <laughs> really, man. And one was the UFC. Was the UFC? Well, actually, a couple of UFCs I went to, I guess. But uh, you know, hanging out with Jeff Mullen at the early UFCs. I mean, you could just get up and walk backstage. I mean, it was absolutely nothing. I remember when I thought I had made it. Was uh, we went to a UFC in New Orleans. It's like probably UFC twenty five. And uh, I don't know if you remember Marty Smith or not. He was he was. He was the first, or yeah, he was the first heavyweight. He, he fought Randy Couture for the first heavyweight championship. Anyway, great kickboxer. 
Well, he had come to Jeff Mullen's school a couple of months before that and given a seminar. So Dave and I are getting off the elevator, the doors open, and it's like Pete Williams, uh, Frank Shamrock, uh, and and Maurice Smith. And Maurice Smith looks at me, he's like, where do I know you from? I'm like, yeah, I made it, you know. Yeah, it's kind of cool. But really, man, uh, I'm going to, I'll be honest, I'm, I, 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 I maintain the role that I do in the sport. Um, obviously, it's not for the money. Hell, people that fight don't even fight for the money. Yeah, it's not no. there. Um, it's for my love of the sport. And I'll be honest with you, it was a long time before I was comfortable turning over refing duties to other people. And not that I think I'm the best ref, but I, I just it's second nature to me. And and uh, I was concerned about safety, you know. So letting some of that go. And, uh, man, really, I would like to be able to go to some shows and just, just watch. I mean, I have a good seat now. I don't have as much responsibility. But I'd like to go and be able to have a few beers, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I can sneak one every once in a while now, but it's it's frowned upon, <laughs> like masturbating on an airplane. You know? it's, yeah. just, it's not illegal. It's frowned upon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that wouldn't be lost on you. No. Yeah. But, um, you know, I. Like I, like we talked about, it, the, the trajectory is leveled off. So I'm looking forward to. Um, I think it, at some point the sport will will level off. Like we said, it, it's changing, it's still evolving, and I think it always will to some point. But I think it's going to establish itself at a certain level, and I'm anxious for that to happen. And uh, man, you know, our again, Dave and I, we used to sit around and talk about it all the time. We we're like, oh, yeah, if you had ten million dollars, what's your dream card? What would you put on? You know. Um, I'd like to have Ed McMahon deliver me a check so I can just put on just some fun fights, you know, yeah. so like at my birthday party. All right, uh, you know, Hickson, you're going to fight somebody tough now. I know you're <laughs> 60, but you're going to fight Marco Huas or, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, something good, boss rooting, whatever. Man, I don't know. I help out any way I can. Uh, you know, and for those that uh, that don't know, I, uh, I manage Jamie Houston's uh, Oxford Fitness Kickboxing Gym in Oxford, uh, right now uh, and I enjoy that so I get to work with some of the fighters Ben Parrish just had knee surgery so I've kind of had to take over duties of uh, being one of the head coaches and trainers which I don't like I'm not qualified I'm not as qualified as Ben and uh, my schedule doesn't allow for it but uh, you know I'm not going to let the guys down so uh, I'm kind of playing that role now Um, man I just kind of want to I want to see guys have a good forum to improve Uh, I would like for uh there to be a little more Memphis MMA has a little more uh, turbulence than Drama. yeah it, it, but you know Memphis is like that period Memphis yeah. has its own flavor of everything oh, and absolutely. I don't know what it is but you know and I think I think it kind of threw leader fine for a loop you know he comes out here from California you know he knows the sport a smart guy hard working dude let me tell you that oh, guy's a hard yeah, worker no on doubt. top of everything man um, I think it took him a little longer I think his curve was a little longer not because he didn't have the knowledge but I don't care if it's Dana White. You come take over a promotion here, there's a learning curve, and it's just a little bit different. You know, you have to deal with all the nuances. Just like, for instance, you know, Memphis Judo and Jiu-Jitsu has always had their own dressing room at V3 because there's always controversy between them and other schools. Well, now there's that split with them, so now they're going to have two separate dressing rooms plus everybody else's. I mean, it's the, uh, you know, the nuances are just, uh, you know, they're, they're ever-changing. So I'd like to see everybody kind of settle in I think ideally at some point, everybody needs to be under the same roof if it's not. But for one day a week, Sunday training, all the top pros in there, put your fucking egos aside. Yeah. Just come and train, man. Get better. I don't care who you are, how good you think you are. Uh, You know, there's nothing, you know, 
everybody can learn something from training with Kevin Henry. I hate to say that. It breaks my jaw to say that. But, no, you know, no, Kevin's yeah. a guy I like to fuck with a lot. Uh, it's really a lot more tongue-in-cheek than most people think. Uh, I'm not crazy about him. and But, uh, you know, he's uh, – I respect the guy more than I lead on because – He'll get in there and fight anyone, oh, you know. Yeah. He'll, he'll talk shit, and he'll get in there, and, and he'll he'll come back it up. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, he, you know, I respect he, that of him. You got to make him quit, but but you know, I think you can learn from anyone. I mean, you can watch two dogs fighting long enough and be like, hey, yeah, that's something. You know, I picked that up. You know, I, if you study hard enough. So, I'd like to see. Ultimately, I guess if I had a magic wand, I'd like to see everybody at least put the egos aside for a little bit for the sake of getting better and furthering the sport. That yeah. that I guess that would world peace would be you know would would be my dream. South peace, right? There you go. <laughs> but uh, just for the sport to keep growing, man, and uh, you know guys like you doing your thing and you know keeping it out there, that it all plays a part in it, man. You know, um, I, I think I'd have to give Jeff Mullen the credit. If if you're from this area or in this area now and you train in martial arts or mixed martial arts. Jeff Mullen has has had some influence on you, whether you know it or not. It's kind of like if you play rock music today, whether you know it or not, uh, Chuck Berry, the Beatles, and Led Zeppelin have probably influenced you, whether you like them or whether you even know it. <laughs> by default, they've you know by osmosis they they've influenced you. And I, you know, I think uh, I think Mullen gets a lot of the credit for that. You know, and he should. Um, you know, I, I I I used to joke that you know being a matchmaker when you're trying to matchmake Jeff Mullen's people is is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like I actually really like the guy, um, uh, especially now I'm not matchmaking and I have to deal with any of that. Right. But uh, yeah, and he, I respect the hell out of him. He's done incredible things. Um, maybe sometime I'm gonna have him on this podcast. That'd be awesome too. Dude, yeah, he'd be on, man, and he, he's great. You know, like I said, he's say what you want to, but Zufa. You know, there have been different ownership groups with the USC, different presidents, but they've always gone and sought out Jeff and had Jeff on. And the thing is, he's an incredibly nice guy. Like I, I've actually never heard him <laughs> say anything negative, even to me when I was being a dick. So. Yeah, no, no, man. He's got a long fuse. He's super laid back. And, and let me tell you, I don't, I don't. Uh, there's been lots of times where I've been like, Jeff, what do you do? You know, think how, how can you? I've texted him, been watching the FC, and text like, Jeff, why did you, why did you score that like that? You know, <laughs> well, you didn't see this, and I disagree, but. But I believe in Jeff. Jeff, well, like, said, like I said with Jimbo. Jimbo and I, you know, we're not as different as Jeff and I as far as opinions go. But we, if there's a split decision, we're usually on opposite sides. But it's always the same criteria that gets us there. So it, it's a small difference. And and uh, same thing with Jeff, man. He's uh, And look, say what you want, but everyone, I mean, you know, Mark Ratner said, yeah, Jeff, come on out. I want you to be my replacement. I mean, you know, he he's, he has big respect in the uh, in the MMA world. And, uh, you know, I... I uh, I, 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 you know, I love him like a like a older brother slash dad. You know, he's my first coach, and uh, he's a great guy. But yeah, I think I think he's uh, if you had to if you had to name one guy in this area, especially that uh, kind of kept it started it and kept it going, it'd be it'd be Mullen. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of gone back and forth, but I respect the hell out of him. Uh, I like him a lot now, um, and and. I've, I've seriously never heard him say anything negative. No, uh, and, he, and he's not going to bullshit you either. Yeah. He's not going to bullshit you. I mean, yeah, it's where's gold. That's That says a lot about somebody yep. nowadays, especially in the sport. Oh, man, know. I know. It's full of, uh, you know, empty promises, yeah. But, yeah, man, well, um, 
Shoot, we got we went for about an hour and a half, man. Uh, yeah, I got a little long one. No, I loved it, man. I, I'm I'm excited. I had you on here. Um, I'd love to have you back on any other time. Yeah, uh, for sure, man. And uh, like like you know, you said, I, I bet if you give Jeff a call and give him enough lead time, man, he would he'd love to be on. And you talking about a wealth of information. He's got some great USC stories. Man. I'm gonna have to buy some more airtime or something. Right <laughs> I'm on. not gonna let him off in an hour and a half. <laughs> right on. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate you coming down, man. Um, yeah, I know for it's having me. a bit of a drive for you. Um, I'm sure I'll end up seeing, catching you on some of these next fights coming up. and uh, Yeah, we'll talk offline about some uh, access to certain shows coming up, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, thank you again, man. Um, guys, stay tuned. Got a few more people coming on. Uh, super pumped about. Uh, and yeah, we'll go We'll go from there. I'm not going to give any spoilers as much as I really want to because I'm not going to jinx anything. But stay tuned. Awesome people ahead. Uh Mike, thank you again, man. Keep up the good work, man. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Yep. All right, we're out. Boom. Awesome. Hey.